You're listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. You know, in the early 2000s, growing up in the church, I thought we had it made. Um, Wayne mentioned skipping sports camps and stuff to go to camp, and I had kind of the same, but like opposite of him. Um, my coach was like, yeah, why don't you go ahead and go to church camp? That'd be, that'd be great for you. That's a good path for your life. Um, but in the early 2000s, something happened that I thought was going to change the course of church history forever. Paparazzi caught Ashton Kutcher wearing a Jesus is my homeboy shirt. And it was plastered all over the news. And I was like, this is it. This is our moment, right? We got a celebrity endorsement. Jesus is his homeboy. He's been my homeboy for a while. So like, we're like brothers in Christ, right? So I was like, this is it. And like, lots of celebrities um, started wearing these shirts. Like it was like, a, like Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. Well, probably not Tom Cruise, but like Brad Pitt. <laughs> At least Brad Pitt was wearing one, I think. Um, some other people, like I just noticed. I was like, hey, there's like, it's popular now. So like all the like... Weird 80s and 90s Christian music that I used to try to get my friends listening. No, it sounds just like, you know, this. And they're like, oh, whatever. Like, it was now going to be all over the radio, right? It was going to be the best thing. And then, you know, instead of summer camps and all that sort of stuff that all my friends went to, they would all want to come to church camp with me. And they would all, like, all of this stuff. I was like, this, this is our moment. Well, as you can tell, that wasn't really the moment that I thought it was going to be. Um, and it didn't really, not really much of a blip on the radar when it comes to what happened. But, um, those pictures are still out there, and you can still see that. And um, You know, celebrity endorsements are, are, are great for most things. Um, but one thing we've been kind of talking about over the last 12 weeks in this series, one at a time, is how the way that Jesus wants us to make disciples, the way that Jesus wants us to reach the world is, is a little different than the way the world wants things to go viral or the world wants things to spread. And so there's like marketing campaigns and, you know, really good, you know, really good ways to think of all how you spread a message and that sort of stuff. And, and that the way of Jesus works differently. You know, that we could say the message of Jesus can change the world, but, but the method of Jesus was, was one person at a time, was one at a time. We've been kind of following the chapters in Kyle Eidelman's book by the same title and, and, uh, you know, a celebrity endorsement, like I said, is great. Multiplication in the kingdom of God, though, does not come from mass-producing disciples, it, it, from making it more popular, popular or palatable. Multiplication in the kingdom of God comes from, just to list a few of our sermon titles, intentional, relational, one party, one word, one expression, one conversation, one meal, one meeting, at a need, and a need at a time. Uh, Pete Scazzaro, who's the author of um, the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship kind of series in his book by that same title, he uses this graphic to show us the differences in how we tend to view making disciples and how Jesus modeled disciple making. As you can see there on, on your left, that uh, modern day discipleship kind of looks like this. You get everybody into the top of the funnel, which, which is church attendance. Think of that. We all get into the building, then we start to funnel out. You know, like as, as we head down the funnel, um, you know, a lot of people who come and we, we pray that if you come to Northside that you really connect, that you connect and that you grow here. And when you connect, you, you actually, you know, find a place that you can serve and your talents and your gifts are used here and you kind of work your way down, but it's fewer and fewer people, the farther you get down the funnel. 
And then there's a few that we send to the mission field or that we send to Bible college, a few that really take that step and start to make disciples that make disciples. Uh, True discipleship, the way of Jesus. Jesus' disciple strategy started with three and the twelve and multiplied from there. It's actually upside down from the way that the kingdom of the world works. Multiplication didn't come from mass marketing or a viral video or even a cool church with trendy, you know, with trendy colors and styles and all that stuff. It wasn't that. It started with Jesus choosing to engage one at a time. And, and those disciples would multiply. Actually, less than 20 years after Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Sorry about the spoilers. Come back next week to hear more about that. But... Jesus is raised from the dead tw- less than 20 years after. We see, that, we see that the disciples are said to have been turning the world upside down. They went from city to city, mission, you know, missionary journeys that we read through the book of Acts. And the world is starting to be shaped by Jesus' model of ministry. One at a time living, disciples who make disciples. Meeting people where they are, not where they should be. Loving the unlovable, approaching the unapproachable. This is the way of the kingdom. And so what I want to do today a little bit is kind of wrap up this series, put a big bow on this 12-week series that we've been in. And and as I do that, you're going to hear a lot of sayings and phrases that we've kind of done from different. You're going to hear a lot of stuff. If you've been in our disciple-making trainings, you're going to hear a lot of crossover from that. And some of you are going to be like, we've just been, we've been saying a lot of the same things over and over again. And now this is kind of the like, all right, this is where the rubber meets the road. If you brought Bibles this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at a couple really, really busy days in Jesus' life. Um, because this morning I want to talk about roadblocks. I want to talk about roadblocks, like this one right here. Um, and for those of you wondering, I did not steal this. I don't know what kind of person you think I am. I would get a much nicer one if I was going to steal it. Now, we actually rented this, $6 a day. You can have one of these in your yard if you want, if you want it. But um, I'll give it to you for three tomorrow if you want to. But um, this morning I want to talk about roadblocks. Over the last 12 weeks, we've been talking about one at a time living. And it is inevitable when you hear something in church or when you you read something in your Bible, that as you start to walk and implement that into your life, it's not going to be long before you run into a roadblock. There are going to be things that get in your way. The things in life that just come up. The things that we purposely put in our ways. You know, uh, uh, it's... We talk about like the, the things that so easily entangle us and distract us. Over the past few weeks, if you live here on the north side and you use Glenstone a lot, you know that there's been a lot of these type of things and uh, traffic cones and that sort of stuff. And I always forget. I always forget I'm here for lunch and then I get ready to leave. I'm going down to, you know, uh, my fine dining choice of the, of the day, which is usually one of those eight restaurants on North Glenstone. And uh, I, will, I will head down that direction and always forget, like, oh, this is going to take me a little longer because there's, there's, a, there's a detour. I'm leaving to go get my daughter from school. And I leave right at the right moment that I know how long it takes me to get from here to South National to get to her place. But I forget about the roadblocks. I forget. So I get down there. And then so I, I figured out the other day, I'm headed down Glenstone. I'm like, I'm going to avoid this roadblock. So I take a right there, Valley Water Mill, and I go over to National. Well, guess what's on National now? Another roadblock. Yeah. And so there are days when I will like decide I want something for lunch, which should just be a straight there and back. And I end up like on the west side of town doing something else completely different um, because of the roadblocks, the detours. So, uh, you know, I grew up in the I grew up in the country and people used to say things like, you know, like um, 
when they, when they might not make it to something, you know, they say like, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, right? Like we don't have that really happen a whole lot here. There's been times, you know, the last few weeks when some roads got kind of washed over. But like that, that kind of a thing is like, I'll make it there, but I might not be able to make it there, you know? Roadblocks send us on detours, redirect our quick trips, even sometimes cause us to give up the pursuit altogether. One at a time living, if that is your journey and you're starting, you will face detours. You will get distracted. You will get redirected, interrupted. You will get frustrated, tired, and maybe even fearful as you try to live this way. The good thing is, like, like when you're just driving from here to North Glenstone, if you plan your destination accordingly, these roadblocks can be avoided. So they can be a part of your journey, not the end of it. So to help us identify these roadblocks, I want to look at these few days in the life of Jesus that are just swamped with ministry stuff. It's just like he goes from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. So if you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, go down towards the end of the chapter. This is actually the concluding of the first one of these days. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 54 says this. Jesus went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue. So that, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So Jesus has a little bit of a homecoming. He gets, he gets to go home. He goes back to Nazareth. And you would think after Jesus has kind of made a name for himself and he's starting to heal people, the name of Jesus is starting to get out. People know who Jesus is. It's not like he's an unknown kid, anything like that. He's going back now um, as an adult to his hometown and is it probably expecting maybe a little bit of fanfare? You know, the disciples are probably like, oh, we're going like, we're going like where, where he came from. Like there's going to be like, you know, there'll probably be like a museum, you know, like a store for Jesus, like down here where it's like Elvis stayed here. They surely they've got something at his house. It's like, this is where Jesus lived, you know, those sort of things. Can I get like a Jesus souvenir? Wouldn't that be kind of weird if like, never mind. Um, so you're thinking there'd be something, you know, welcome them home, which is Palm Sunday. Towards the end of Jesus' life, we see him come into Jerusalem and it's palm branches and all this. But that is not the welcome that Jesus receives. Imagine going back to your hometown, a place where you felt like you would be welcomed and loved, a place where you felt the most at home, that you would be supported. And you get this. Look at verse 56. 56, they start to ask these questions. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all of these things? Where is he getting all of this? Like, what, who, is, who does this guy think he is? Like, what is he expecting when he comes back? I don't know. I don't know about you, but I would feel hurt by that. I remember the first time I went back home after leaving for college. I'd stayed for like a month, and I came home, and I was like, I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to go cruise, right? And I would drive, we would drive around Sonic and drive around the square. And like, that took you 45 seconds, but you did it like 45 times. And that was cruising. So I was going to go cruise. And like, I didn't get like welcome. They're like, oh, Alan's back. They're like, why is this creep coming back here? Like, why would you come back? And they start asking these questions. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Like, isn't this the guy? Like, don't we know him? Why is everybody making such a big deal about Jesus? Oh, he has his followers now. Okay, well, like, I could get some followers like don't we have like a like a wobbly table or something that he could fix while he's in town you think he's still carpenter you know doing the carpenter thing like all of this stuff like what what do they expect when he comes back this roadblock to one at a time living can come directly from the enemy or it can come to the people closest to you and it's it's what we call the roadblock of insignificance insignificance 
at the roadblock of insignificance, Jesus goes back to his hometown and they just try to convince him of who he used to be. They just, they just remind him of who he was in the past. Maybe you do that. Just, just watch this show up. Maybe your family says it. Oh, you're all holier than thou now. Oh, you've started, you've started, oh, you're, you're, you're living that Jesus life or whatever. Okay, oh, all right, you, you read your Bible, you do that. Like, all of these things, who do you think you are? Maybe, maybe you start making one disciple at a time. You start, you start reaching out to the left out and you start praying for, for people and you're just unashamed of your faith and you're, you're you know, letting people know that you're a believer and you want to help them and pray for them and those sort of things. And people look at you like you've joined some kind of crazy cult. They're like, whoa, whoa. Like, I mean, like we all go to church, but like, don't. Don't bring that out here. You know, the, the world will try to convince you that one at a time is a waste of time. That's a waste of time. You're not going to make any difference. You're insignificant. Jesus goes back to Nazareth and they're like, what is he trying to do? Start some kind of like revolution that'll still be around thousands of years from now or whatever. Like, who does this kid think he is? Like, right. He wasn't even a good table maker. Like, right. So here's Jesus goes back and it's like, they try to convince him. They just, they just try to convince him how small and insignificant he is. Kyle Eidelman writes it in his book. He says, too often the issue isn't that the need is intimidatingly big. It just feels insignificantly small. You can do it, but would it matter? One at a time living is not a waste of time. We've been talking the whole series about how even the small little things that seem so insignificant make a big impact. The enemy wants you to think that these little decisions, these acts of love, these, these seemingly unnoticed prayers and tears that you have shed for people who are far from God, who have walked away or strayed away from the faith. Little, small, unnoticed. The enemy wants you to believe that that's what they are. But I love how the voice paraphrase puts 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It reads like this. For people who are stumbling toward ruin, the message of the cross is nothing but a tall tale for fools by a fool. But for those of us who are already experiencing the reality of being rescued and made right, it is nothing short of God's power. We stand at the roadblock of insignificance when we focus on the smallness of the act and not the power of the God who made it possible. Over and over in scripture and church history, we see insignificant people doing significant things for God. What does that mean in 2022? What does it mean to be an insignificant person doing significant things for God? It means you don't need to be an influencer to have influence. We can get frustrated. Like we don't have the, we don't have the clout that we should, or we don't have the platform that we think we should. Sure, sure, you don't have a million followers on Instagram, but you've got five coworkers. Sure, sure, you don't, you know, we, we, want, we want God to like split the skies open and give us this divine calling. Or we want to see a burning bush and him to tell us exactly where we need to go, like Moses or Aaron. Like, like we want some of that Old Testament feeling, right? That God has showed me the way to go. Meanwhile, we've got classmates and teammates and sweet mates that are staring at us going like, do you really believe this stuff in the day-to-day grind of life? Or do you also think it's insignificant? Mother Teresa probably said it best when she said, God hasn't called us to do great things. He's called us to do small things with great love. So as we turn the page in Jesus' week to chapter 14, the road does not get any easier for Jesus. The roadblocks don't stop there. He's, He's made to feel insignificant in his hometown, but then the bad news hits. He gets word that his cousin... His ministry partner, his opening act, as you could say, who, who paved the way for his ministry early in the Gospels. John the Baptist has been executed by the king. 
rejected by his hometown, belittled in questions. And then this news comes. His cousin, who had paved the way for his ministry, who had baptized him, is now dead. And Jesus had a way to deal with this roadblock. He had a way to deal with this. We see him do it often in the Gospels. Look at 14, verse 13. Chapter 14, verse 13. It says, when Jesus heard about it, when he heard about his cousin who had passed, who had been executed, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. So he hears the news. He needs space. He needs space to feel what is, what is welling up inside of him. As a fully God, fully man, he's feeling everything. So he needs this space. So he gets in a boat and he goes across. After taking a couple blows to the chest, he withdraws to be alone. But notice the next couple sentences. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot. He goes across the lake and they go around the lake. When he came ashore, he saw the large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. Another potential roadblock for Jesus. Can you imagine him pulling up to shore on the other side and realizing that the crowd that he had just tried to distance himself from to get some time alone is already there waiting for him, waiting for more needs. This is the roadblock we call um, exhaustion. The roadblock of exhaustion. The amount of things that hit us at different times, the waves of emotion that come through. At, at a moment's notice, the phone can ring. The results can come back. The relapse can occur. The doorbell rings, what, whatever. Even, even when it's good news or people that we enjoy hanging out with, it can still stack up. Do you remember the story of Jesus when he's walking through the crowd and the woman touched the hem of his robe? Do you remember what he said? He said, who touched me? Because he had felt the power leave him. When you live a one-at-a-time life, when you engage one person at a time, it's going to take something out of you. And we get exhausted. We get tired. So at a moment's notice, the, the fervor for changing the world now becomes a fever pitch of maybe I shouldn't or what if I didn't. I was talking with Kevin Punch this week about this idea of exhaustion. And we were both like trying to keep our eyes open with all of our kids. Um, just this idea of like, oh, we get tired. But there, he, he mentioned there are different kinds of exhaustion, though. There are definitely different things that, that, that suck the life out of us. There are different things that, that make us tired. And the first one is kingdom work. Kingdom work. And it's pretty rare for someone to be completely out and out exhausted from just kingdom work. You know, like I've been just, you know, I've preached too many sermons. I've pre you know, like, it's just one of those things that like, um, we look at Jesus. This is what Jesus is likely feeling here. I remember when Willie Robertson was here a few weeks ago, um, we asked him a question that was like, hey, um, you know, you've got a lot of demands on your life. You're a CEO, you're a dad, you're a, you know, obviously an unashamed disciple maker, but you've got a lot of stuff going on with demands on your time. And we're like, how do you manage it all? How do you keep from just being exhausted all the time? And he, he made a very clear distinction between kingdom work and other work. He was like, there's a, there's a very clear distinction between um, making disciples and preaching the gospel and evangelizing and helping this one-at-a-time type of living and being the CEO of Buck Commander. He was very clear about that. You know, for me, preaching can be exhausting. I was just, I was just talking to someone in between the services, like sometimes the first service and the second service look completely different. And if you talk to me after this service, whatever I say, I probably shouldn't be like whole hell in a court of law type of a stuff. Cause like my mouth is just like, blah, 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 blah. my tongue stops working about noon on, on, on Sundays. It's just like, it just like, it's exhausting. I remember back when we had three services and Wayne's doing this every single week. So like he's, you know, he's a machine, but he played, you know, played all-star baseball, but, um, <laughs> Maybe that's the difference. 
Um, but, but it can be exhausting. But I'll tell you what, if, if, you, if you met me out in the lobby after this and you were like, hey, we had a bunch of people forget what time church was and they just showed up and they want a third sermon, like I would do it again. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, um, if you were here, maybe you know, a couple months ago, I told a story about helping a lady. Um, I, I filled up her tank of gas in a part of town that I don't ever go to. And like this lady, she's kept my number and we just text back and forth. Well, the other day I got a text from her and she was like, um, will you marry me and my fiance? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. I was like, what, what's the date? And they're like, today. <laughs> and it's a Tuesday morning. And I was getting ready to have lunch with my wife. And I was like, let me talk it over with my wife. Um, you guys have the marriage license. Like, oh yeah, we've had the marriage license. We just both have the day off and we want to get married today. And uh, the courthouse only does it on certain days. And she's like, I know a pastor. I've got his number in my phone. I was like, oh, I'm really glad you saved that. Um, so I left lunch with my wife and I went home and I put on my suit and tie and I came up to the church on a Tuesday afternoon and I married Lily and George right here in uh, right over in our, our high school space. And uh, it was one of the it was one of the most refreshing things. It was so cool. I was like, man, I just can't believe I'm, I'm doing this. And like, you know, and, and sometimes that sort of stuff, that sort of stuff happens and it energizes me. Kingdom work is, is the best kind of tired. Like kingdom exhaustion for me is, is my favorite kind of exhaustion. It's after the week of camp. When it has just been nonstop talking with students and seeing lives changed or leading worship or teaching or whatever that was, that I can walk away and go, I am so exhausted, but, but I feel great. And we can see Jesus do that. And we notice what Jesus does when he reaches the other side of the lake. He doesn't rebuke the crowd, you know. He doesn't throw the boat in reverse and head to the other side. He's like, I'll stick to the middle for a little bit. No, no, he has compassion and he starts to heal their sick. He finds another gear, this extra mile mentality we've talked about, moving compassion from the pit of your stomach to the palms of your hands. These are all ways that we keep loving when we get kingdom work exhausted. But there's more than one kind of exhaustion. The other one is something we really can't control, and it's, it's just the heaviness of life. When it feels like you, you hit this roadblock of exhaustion and it feels like every time you take a step forward that you get knocked two steps back. Kyle Ottoman says that sometimes life hits you over the head with a brick and sometimes it crushes you with a concrete block. Imagine what Jesus is feeling in this moment. It hurts. It's lonely. This is my least favorite kind of exhaustion because it, it just it feels like it's got more questions than answers. It's, 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 it's actually what I was feeling a little bit this week. Um, I got two phone calls from my mom this week. Both were tragic. One of them was that our, you know, where we live kind of out on the farm, there's not a whole lot of, you know, there's a lot of land connected to whatever. And the, the neighbor's dogs who live quite a few lots over had gotten loose and actually um, attacked our dogs. Um, these are dogs we've had for close to 12 years. Um, my kids have never seen another dog, other dogs at my parents' house. And my parents have had um, JJ and Steeler for years. They jump on the trampoline with the kids and all of that. So the night we had to sit at the table with our kids and explain the next time we go to Grandma and Papa's house that JJ and Steeler aren't going to be there is heavy. There's nothing we can, nothing we can do about that. There's nothing we can, you know, you're angry, you're mad, and it's tragic, but it's also like it's, 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 it's part of life. The second phone call I got from my mom was even more tragic. She said that um, my childhood dentist, his granddaughters attended the Covenant School in Nashville. 
And his nine-year-old granddaughter, Evelyn, did not get to leave school that day. She didn't survive. Waves and waves come over you. Tornadoes that claim more than 20 lives this weekend. Lives lost. Things that just, there's, it seems like there's just nothing you can do to hold back the brokenness for hurt people hurting people and, and brokenness ruining our world. We look across and we see it. And just like Jesus, we need to find a way to, to manage the heaviness of life. To keep trying to find space to allow us to feel what we're feeling. We've been created with feelings, guys. Guys, men. <laughs> They're there. My daughter, I used to pick her up and, and she would like, uh, she, she'd always grab my top jaw and my bottom jaw and like pry them open, like worse than the dentist girl. Like she'd get it like super for love because she's, I got a lot of fillings because I love, I love Mountain Dew and Skittles, but she would see all those fillings in there and then she would always, she'd, I'd pick her up and she goes, what you got? And I was like, oh, all right. And I knew this was happening. She opened that up and she said, you got feelings in there? <laughs> I was like, Nope. <laughs> You got feelings in there? You know, we, we've got to find... Sometimes you just need space. Sometimes you got to get in a boat and get on a lake. Sometimes you got to get in a deer stand. Sometimes you just got to get in a car in a parking lot with nobody around you. And you just got to give yourself a spiritual retreat day, a quiet lunch hour. And you just got to ask yourself, do you have feelings? Do you feel the weight of the world? Are you exhausted because things just keep waving over? Jesus had a way to deal with this. Notice at least four times in chapters 13 through 15, Jesus gets away from the crowd. He withdraws from the crowd. Look at 13 verse 36. After a long stretch of teaching, he left the crowd and went into the house. He's like, I need a break. He backs into the house. 14 verse 13. He withdrew after hearing about the, the, the death of John the Baptist. He goes off by himself. 14 verse 23, after feeding the 5,000, he goes up onto the mountain to pray alone and sends the disciples out. That's right right before he walks on the water. But he goes to be alone. 1521, if you jump into, into chapter 15, verse 21, after him and the Pharisees get in this little tough about washing hands, which is like a whole other sermon. And like, uh, you know, this, this whole deal where they're, they're mad that the, he's doing all these miracles and stuff. They're like, yeah, but we noticed your disciples didn't wash their hands before you performed this miracle. And it's like, why, really? Whatever. But after this kind of showdown with them, it says that he withdrew to Tyre and Sidon. He goes off to a remote place. Jesus avoids the roadblock with healthy rhythms and retreat. At the roadblock of exhaustion, see, we think that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus without regularly sitting at the feet of Jesus. We think that we can, we can do it on our own. We can push through another extra mile. That we can just hustle a little bit more. We can add one more thing. And honestly, the third roadblock that we'll mention this morning is connected. All of this is really connected. But I felt like it needed its own panel because I had three. And I don't think it's like biblical to do a two-point sermon. So we're going to do three. Yeah, we all will feel insignificant. We start to walk this path of insignificance. You start to walk in, you feel insignificant, like what we're doing doesn't matter. And we feel compassion fatigue. We're, we're exhausted from helping people and just the weight of the world has fallen on our shoulders. But this one is maybe the hardest to avoid because not only is it celebrated, but it's just kind of woven into the fabric of our whole culture. And it's the, the roadblock of busyness. And I did spell that right. I checked many times, Okay. I kept trying to look up the definition of busyness, and they were like, it's a corporation. I'm, like, that's not, I'm confused. So that's business. That's a different word. Or is it? Okay. 
Look back to chapter 15. Verse 21, we see Jesus withdraw. Yet a, yet a Canaanite woman finds him. Pay attention to the disciples in this verse, because we're going to focus on Jesus, but look at what the disciples do. So just then a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus did not say a word to her. The disciples, though, approached him and urged him, send her away because she's crying out after us. And I can only imagine what Jesus maybe thought, like what I would have thought if I were Jesus and the disciples came to me and said, she's bothering us. She wasn't bothering them. She wanted to bother Jesus, right? The disciples now all of a sudden have become pretty busy. She keeps crying out. You know, it's, it's interesting because just a chapter ago, when there's 5,000 people who are left hungry and the disciples go, Jesus, they need some food. What are we going to do? Well, should we send them away to get food? And G- what does Jesus say to them? He says, give them something to eat. And they all go, oh, I don't have any money. I don't have any food. We've just got this little small Lunchable here. Like, I can't do anything with this. And now a chapter later, they're like, can you get rid of her? She's really bothering the ministry that we're doing here, Jesus. Like, she's... She's calling out after us. I just think it's interesting. It's like, yeah, us. Okay. The disciples have all of a sudden become too busy for people. And maybe it was with the best intentions. Set boundaries for Jesus. They didn't want him taken advantage of. Maybe they they saw her as unclean because she's a Gentile. But, But they should have known by now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, they should have known that this is not how Jesus operates. This is one of the busiest stretches of Jesus' ministry. And they were like drawing a line. We're too busy to be bothered. You can almost see Jesus roll his eyes like, we're busy, huh? Yeah, you guys have had it pretty rough, right? Do you remember when Jesus was meeting with the woman at the well? When he's sitting there talking to this Samaritan woman that a Jew wouldn't be, you know, caught talking with normally. And he's sitting there on the edge of the well and he's telling her all about, you know, when spirit and truth and all of this is coming. Do you remember where the disciples were when that was happening? <laughs> they were at Whataburger down the street, right? They went into town to get food. And then they come back and Jesus is like, Hey, good to see you guys. I've been talking to this Samaritan woman. And they're like, they're like, Jesus, did you want some food? And Jesus says, I've, I've got food that you know nothing about. And they're like, obviously, cause we didn't bring anything. And, um, like, does somebody bring him food? Does somebody, he's obviously he's trying to make this spiritual conversation with them and they're just not getting it. This whole time, they're not getting it. They're all kind of going through their bags going like, who had the, you know, who had the nuggets, who had the whatever. And meanwhile, this woman is running back to the town that they just came out of. Why didn't they talk to any of those people? Well, they had to go get lunch. They, they, they had something on their schedule. They were super focused. They didn't get distracted. They went and they got their lunch and they came right back, stayed on schedule. They were too busy. They focused too much on lunch that they missed the harvest. Jesus said, look, the harvest is ripe. Workers are few. You guys in or you out? In and out was not a restaurant. Corey Ten Boom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And I guess that if you've thought about this, like one at a time living, and maybe you've even been inspired by some of these messages, and you've thought, maybe even read the book, and you're like, hey, I, I feel it. I'm ready to do it. I just don't know how it fits into my life. All of the slices are taken. I can't squeeze more in there. You see, the fix to your busy life is not to miraculously add more hours to the day. That's the good news of all of this is Jesus isn't asking you to add something. He's not asking you to add one at a time living. He's asking you to live one at a time. 
I saw this reel on Instagram the other day. It was this guy, he takes his day, he gets up like ungodly hour early and like decides that like instead of just 24 hours in a day, he's going to chop it up into like three days, which is weird, but whatever. He was, I was just listening to him. I listened to him multiple times. Like, okay. So he was like, my day starts at whatever time. And then my first day ends. And it was like before lunch. And I was like, I don't think you can do that with time, but maybe he can, right? He's figured out a way to be more productive. And this is a quote from me. He said, I get 21 days in the time that you get seven days. And then he said something like, I'm going to crush you. And I was like, I didn't even know we were like, like we were going to comp- competing or something, right? Okay. But now I'm interested. And this tends to be our mindset, right? Like if I could just add a few more hours, if I could work three days in one day, I, you know, our lives are so filled, our schedules are so jam-packed, and then we, we see a need, we've already got three other things on the calendar that we've already had to stack up. We're not going to be able to help that person or in that situation or volunteer in that space. We're not going to be able to love with compassion and time because we don't have any left. John Mark Comer said it this way in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It says both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. When, when you stand at the roadblock of busyness, you hit another roadblock and everything just goes off the rails. Jesus doesn't want us to add one at a time living to our already busy life. He wants you to subtract some self-inflicted busyness. It's not kingdom work. It's not the, the, the heaviness of life that just rushes over you without your control and just the brokenness of our world. It's the stuff that we just keep on piling onto ourselves. At the roadblock of busyness, we fill our schedule with tasks and we leave no margin for people. We leave no margin for people. It's all the things that we need to do, not the people that we need to reach. My wife and I in 2019 started a, we started a unique practice. And I only say it's unique because I've, I've never really seen someone do it well. And maybe we're not even doing it well, but we're trying to figure it out. And we started, we started observing a Sabbath day. And, and for us, it was like this huge shift, this huge change. And like, what if, we, what if we just tried this and we did this? Now, when I say observe the Sabbath, some of you may like cringe a little bit. Okay? Some of you may have like a bad taste in your mouth. Because when I grew up, the Sabbath meant a couple of things. It meant um, we couldn't go to a restaurant after church, right? We couldn't do that. We couldn't play in baseball or football leagues or whatever that had games on Sundays. It meant that. We weren't going anywhere, okay? We went to church, and then we went home, and we weeded 13 acres of land. (laughs) Seems restful, right? Um, Not exactly rest. And we don't get to do this every every week. Um, Sometimes... Sometimes we, we kind of, you know, get away from it. it doesn't really, we don't get to do it every week, but most weeks, it's usually on our Saturdays, because I'm usually here working on Sundays. So our Saturdays, um, I will leave my computer and the car in the garage. Um, I'll put my phone in the junk drawer. And, and we just identify Sabbath as, as in, in four ways. Um, and this, a lot of this comes from John Mark Comer's book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I'd highly recommend it. But stop, rest, delight, and worship. If it doesn't fit into that category, it's wait until Monday. If it doesn't fit in that category, we're going to try to kind of do it. And it's like, well, well, doesn't the laundry stack up? When does the laundry not stack up, right? The, won't there be dishes? Yeah, there'll be dishes every day for the rest of our lives. There'll be dishes. Well, what about all this stuff that I need to get? Sabbath is not a day where you get all of the stuff done that you couldn't get done during the week. It is an intentional rebellion against the hurriness of life and the busyness 
of our culture to just say, no, I'm going to subtract. I'm going to stop adding and I'm going to subtract. And honestly, the small taste of this unhurried life that we get on Saturdays, it is so worth fighting for. So much so that I start to try to find other times during the week, whether it's a, whether it's a lunch break alone by myself, whether it's a, a spiritual retreat day that I can take where I can start to unbusy my life. Even the good things. I like, like to talk about like even the good things that are not God things. Jefferson Bethke says that if you're not saying no to some good things, you're probably not saying no enough. What are areas in my life that I can slow down, that I can subtract, that I can simplify, where I can find margin? It's not that I want to be more lazy. It's that I want to have more time for people. I want to have time for interruptions. I want to have time for God. Don't let the culture speed you up. See, hurry is the enemy. People are the purpose. One at a time. When, when me and my wife were adopting our son in 2015, there was a ton of roadblocks. If you've been down this road or you understand this, um, you know, the, the first one that I can remember is just scrolling through the pages on the adoption agency's website. It's kid after kid after kid after kid. And it's like, how could you possibly say no to any of them? There's a hundred million orphans in the world and we're going to get one? We're going to adopt one kid? What difference is that going to make? How insignificant is it that we're going to get one kid from the middle of China and that's going to make some kind of a difference? A roadblock of insignificance. Would it even matter? And then there was the endless amounts of paperwork, like late nights and stacks and stacks of legal forms and jargon to sort through and research and all this sort of stuff. It felt like this huge monumental things like every single night. My wife was working 12 hour shifts at the hospital. She'd come home and we'd do like three hours of paperwork and budget work and home study and family history, all of this stuff that we had to do in order to adopt. We were exhausted and we didn't even have a three-year-old yet. It was a roadblock of exhaustion to talk you out of doing what God has called you to do. Then there was the things that we decided not to do. There was the roadblocks of busyness where we had to decide, do we want to do this? Everybody, when we first got married, told us that the, the, one, of the, one of the biggest things you got to do is you got to buy a house and you got to invest in your retirement as quick as you can do, all of those sort of things. And those are not unwise things, okay? Don't, don't hear me say, don't do those. Those are not unwise things. But for our family and what we felt like we were called to do in that moment, we'd sit down with a financial advisor and be like, well, how are you doing on retirement? It's like, I no, no clue. <laughs> but we're really close to having the cash and the money that we need to adopt this little boy, our priorities were different. When you unbusy your life, your priorities become different. People look at you like you're crazy. Like you're not doing this like the rest of us? Yeah. Have you seen the rest of us? We're all tired. We're all running around crazy, like to borrow a Houston term, chickens with our head cut off, right? We're going crazy because we're, we feel exhausted and we feel busy. But when you choose to live one at a time life, what it looks like to put your faith in Jesus. This is why when we, when we chose the slogan for our adoption fundraiser, some of you still have these shirts. I put mine on this morning and was like, I can't wear that on stage. But uh, it was, our slogan was, for the love of one. For the love of one. It's pretty similar to what we've been talking about. For the, for the love of, of one. And I will give you a, a fair warning. If you go that route with adoption and you say for the love of one, you're probably getting two, but I just wanted you to know that. It happens. It grows on you. For the love of one. Church, God is not asking us to do big things. He's asking us to do small things 
with great love. I want to take some time as we finish this series, this, this, all of these ideas that we've had of one at a time, one conversation at a time, one person at a time, one meal at a time, all of the things, I want to put just a big bow on it this morning. And here in just a little bit after, you know, the band is going to play a bit, I just want you to, I just want you to sit in this moment. I know this is kind of the time where we start to get antsy and we start to get itchy and we're like, well, I, I could get, you know, beat the crowd and that hallway doesn't get any less busy. I just want you to sit for a moment. There's going to be three slides that come up. They're just little quotes that we've, we've mentioned here this morning and then a challenge or a question. Something that you can walk away with this week. What does it look like for you to live a one-at-a-time life? And if you'd like to talk more about what it looks like for you to take the next step in your faith, Maybe it is to serve. Maybe it is to connect. Maybe it is to learn what it means to make a disciple that can make a disciple. All of that. I would love to talk to you. Whenever Corey has us all stand, I'll be over here in the decision point area. Our prayer team has kind of surrounded the room. They've already surrounded this building in prayer so many times today. I see them meeting with people in the lobby. It's such a blessing to have this ministry available. But if you don't, if you don't want to come to decision point, totally fine. Just grab one of them. They're standing up waiting for you to pray for you to talk with you about what it means to follow. Just grab one of our our members there or come talk with me in Decision Point. But let's just take a little bit of time to reflect all of the things that God has called us to do over the last 12 weeks. As we launch towards Easter next week, the celebration of the resurrection, and then this new series that we're going to start called Hope in the Face of and all of these things that pile on our life. But I want to take just a moment. We've set it aside. We're not, we're not getting out too late, any of that sort of stuff. Just, just, let's just sit in it. Sit in it and breathe and think of these things. Let's reflect together, church. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.